Welcome to Diplomacy, the podcast for communications in mergers and acquisitions, brought to you by Corporate Diplomat. With our guests, we will discuss how the financial, economic, political and social context can actually impact the value created by a transaction. My name is Louis de Schallemer and I will be your host. I'm pleased to welcome today Alexander Steinbrecher. Alexander is the head of Group Corporate M&A and Legal Affairs with Bombardier Transportation. Alexander, you are a lawyer, you are a mediator, you're a lecturer. Do you want to introduce you a little bit? Yeah, first of all, I'm very happy to be here. Three things maybe about myself. I love what I do, so I'm very grateful for being uh, involved in M&A transactions and other complex transactions where I like to keep it simple. So I think that's always my task. And number two, um, I love communication. So uh, what a wonderful opportunity, because I think oftentimes it's not really about what you do and how you do it, but also why you do it. And you need to tell everybody why you're doing what you're doing. And uh, third of all, um, I'm married with children and and oftentimes, private life is much, much more important than professional life. For mergers and acquisitions, that is basically when you're getting into the phase of a deal, you disappear from the screen. How do you handle that? What are your experiences? Because we always talk about employee engagement and so on and so on. But actually, the deal team disappears for a couple of weeks. There's no weekend. There is no nothing anymore. There is no night. How do you deal with that? For me, work is like sport. And in sports, you often have periods where you're just giving your best. You're, mm -hmm. you're trying to expand your limits. You're in the game. You're in the championship. And thereafter comes rest. So luckily, neither sports competitions nor transactions last forever. So, so I like to draw a comparison from sports and give my best rest, give my best rest. So that's, that's <laughs> probably my style. In your profile, it says that you have a significant experience also in conflict resolution. In mergers and acquisitions, when do conflicts occur? Before, during and after? What is your experience there? Um, how, how does that work? Most lawyers would probably say most conflicts come post-closing. So there's the world-famous business of uh, post-M&A litigation, post-M&A arbitration, where lots of lawyers make lots of money and lots of business people get lots of frustration. <laughs> My view is conflict is in any phase of a transaction. I would even go so far that when you're looking at the opportunity as a potential buyer or whether you're looking at the benefits of divesting when, when you're the seller, I would say conflict is inevitable because there's always different interests at play. And why do I like conflict and conflict resolution? Because I like to table the different interests. I like to see the pros and the cons of the different interests on the table. And then I like to make the puzzle and try to find a puzzle that suits and fits most interests. And I think you need to do that as a seller and you need to do that as a buyer. And you should only have a conversation between the two if mm -hmm. the interests are cleared and can be articulated. Otherwise, sooner or later, you will come into conflict and then it will take a lot more energy and time to, to discuss and resolve. The pieces of the puzzle is that legal business and people or what are the pieces of the puzzle that help you make the transaction work out? I think the 
business interests are the core interests. I mean, why do you divest? Why do you look at acquiring? You, you do have business interests that you want to pursue and, and um, the nature of the transaction will yield some benefits that you're after. So, so that's uh, fair enough. Legal interests, I would like to downplay that may be surprising for you because I'm a lawyer and we tend to always make the law much, much bigger than I think it is. So in a deal, the law plays a role in making sure that what the parties want to accomplish mm -hmm. is well articulated in a document that somebody can understand also weeks and months, years afterwards. And you don't have to be a pro to understand what the parties wanted and what the parties agreed Plus, you need to find a legally compliant way of deal making so that you don't run into issues. Okay, mm. but I think the third element that you mentioned, the, the people element, I think that's the glue, because in the end, it's not corporations and companies that are interacting. It's, it's human beings representing the companies, acting on behalf of the interests of the companies, trying to make it happen, trying to maximize the interests of the parties. But let's not forget, there's also self-interests. So, so I like to always keep in mind that there's the principal agent problem in anything you do in professional life. And I think it certainly helps me to acknowledge that and, and tackle it if I encounter conflicts of interest that result from conflicts between self-interest and the people on the transaction and the deal or interests uh, that are in conflict between the parties involved. Mm -hmm. In um, talking about self-interest, what, what we see is that the number one question that probably anybody involved in a transaction, the number one question is, what's going to happen to my job? Um, so that's not necessarily negative. So sometimes it's difficult, sometimes it is easier. But from uh, the shop floor to the C-suite, the number one concern is what's going to happen to my job. Does that influence the self-interest or is that an self-interest that you refer to that may impact even the negotiation because there are biases in the in the direction that a transaction may take at, a, at an overarching yeah, level, yeah, yeah. so not I've, on an individual observed, level. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've observed that um, colleagues on the deal team give their self-interest in making themselves look good, trying to sell themselves to the buyer, if you know what I mean. Mm. Is, is sometimes more obvious. And then I think you need to find a way of collaboration and orchestrating the team so that the overarching business interests are not impaired or, or negatively uh, impacted by, by this conflict. So I think um, it's inevitable because it lies in our human nature that we want to take good care of ourselves and want to position ourselves uh, properly. But, but I think um, you, you need to confront also your ego and you need to manage it And there, I think communication actually um, is an excellent tool that, in my observation, is not used as early as it could and should in a transaction. Oftentimes, communication guys and girls come in, as I would say, rather late in the transaction. Yes, um, agree. I think uh, one of the, the main opportunities of communications is to be there at the very early stage to actually define the key messages and the themes of the transaction. And the earlier you have 
find the themes and the attitudes, um, the earlier you can give a direction to the transaction itself. And that leads me to a question which I wanted to ask you, because it's something which we have been facing quite a lot of time. Is this question about the confidentiality of a transaction? We know that a transaction usually, especially in listed companies, but not all transactions are with listed companies, require a high level of confidentiality because of employees, because of um, stock exchange, because of competition. So there are good reasons to maintain the confidentiality. And at the same time, today we are in an environment where people find it extremely difficult to keep a poker face. Usually people are rather keen to share something, rather keen to say, okay, can't tell you, but because they are, they are not well equipped to maintain this confidentiality. How do you deal with that in, in, in the transactions that you have seen or have you, what are the stories you can tell there? <laughs> I mean, obviously, um, in the early stages of a transaction, you, you must ensure that there's a very limited number of people who know mm. what is going to happen. And I think there you must make sure that the people who are so close to the transaction, that there's a high level of trust and that these ladies and gentlemen know each other, trust each other and have worked with each other. So at this stage, I believe it makes good sense to have the smallest possible in-house team plus external advisors who do not have a self-interest in, in um, following the sentence knowledge is power because I think oftentimes again it's, it's our ego we think we have this knowledge and it gives us power so we want to play with the power i.e. use the knowledge and make ourselves um, look important or bigger than we are so I think keeping the deal team in the beginning as uh, small as possible is, is something that has always worked very well for me plus bringing in external external experts who can also lay out a communication strategy so that the why of the transaction, why are we doing this, mm. is crystal clear to everybody. And because it's crystal clear, everybody that gets questions or feels tempted to disclose anything at an early stage also understands why confidentiality and not disclosing anything is in the best interest of the deal team, of the deal and, and the companies involved. I think that's, mm. I don't know if that resonates with you, makes sense or is in line with your experience. Yes. Just I, relying on confidentiality agreements, uh, non-disclosure agreements, yeah. um, threatening your employees uh, that you will bring out the, the uh, labor lawyers if you violate the confidentiality in your labor uh, or employment contract. That's nonsense. Yeah, I think trust and building this relationship is definitely a better and a healthier basis than anything else. Do you see any impact of new technologies today and what implications you know, how easy is it to forward an email? How easy is it to attack any of the platforms which you may use or even the confidentiality of such transaction platforms or technology overall? We can do today when we look at uh, transactions, when we can do a reputational assessment, I could find out what Alexander Steinbecher does and where he plays, um, where his kids go. I can find on Facebook. I can find everything about you. So that I can make really from a communications perspective, if we go in a transaction and um, there is so much public information that we can find about either an individual or about a company because they have issues here with their neighbors or a difficult relationship with their unions, whatever there may be, it is quite difficult to hide nowadays. How do you see the impact of technology, of new technologies? 
I think it has, has pros and cons. Let's come to the cons first because you, you just addressed them. I think in times like these where transparency and access to personal information is so readily available, I would say that the, the people on the deal who take decisions and the companies involved I think they need to be letting down their pants very early in the transaction so that they raise what could become public knowledge or what could be used against a company or the parties involved or even individuals. Um, so, so I think you need to do the screening and be uh, self-critical and then tackle it. I think trying to hide it uh, doesn't make sense because um, it's so difficult to hide stuff. That's the negative side, I would say, of technology mm -hmm. and living in the age of social media media. The positive side of technology for me is, and I must admit I'm enthusiastic when it comes to using technology also in, in the field of law and in deal making and transactions. I think the, the benefits of technology in transactions are the same as, as we experience in our private lives. It makes life easier. We can, if you will, outsource certain tasks to technology, if you will, that frees up time and energy for human beings to, to do tasks where we can bring out our best. So I think technology, which is widely used in, in M&A transactions well beyond uh, virtual data rooms, is a benefit, can expedite the deal making and can help the, the parties involved. So I think it, it's good. And I would even advocate that us lawyers, we need to understand and appreciate that technology can do much, much more than us Stone Age lawyers think. Can you give us like one example for non-initiates yeah. what this means concretely already Yeah, today? artificial intelligence is a big word. So I would say there is applications or software-based applications in the area of machine learning, machine reading. Yes. So there is a capability of software and computers to read uh, documents, mm -hmm. to, to extract, for example, in, in the course of a due diligence, catchwords to extract paragraphs and clauses with search engine technology in combination with machine learning. Um, there's even speech recognition, text recognition. I think that's all quite advanced in, in some areas and not utilized as much as it could in deals. And I must say, I, I have a critical view why it's not so much used because there's so many advisors, consultants, and they take advantage of the fact that there's a lack of technology. Hence, the companies, the parties involved have so much to do. But resources, internal resources are scarce because you never prepare for a big M&A transaction. Mm. So you're relying on external support. So there is consultants, advisors that make money with helping you. If now computers and software help you, they have a smaller piece of the cake. So so I think there's a conflict of interest. <laughs> okay. and, and I like to be very vocal about it mm. and say that uh, there's conflicts of interest where some M&A advisors, even legal advisors, slow down innovation, technical innovation and deal making. Okay. So it's kind of uh, the automobile industry that wants to keep up its uh, fuel engine try to avoid electricity for years kind of is, is yeah, that what yeah, you, yeah, yeah. And you arguing that there's no there's not enough um, battery charging hardware on the streets yes or, or other plausible arguments that if you really look at it, the matter are not convincing they may be plausible but they're not convincing if you really look at it 
Mm. Okay. So if we if we speculate a little bit about the future and and dreams of the future, so where do you see the future of M A going? So let's say that all of those consultants all of a sudden are happy to provide new technologies, are happy to integrate into a process that is, and I take you from the very beginning, very simple. So I take you from another word. You said the smallest possible team. So I understand from your perception that an M&A transaction needs to be really a vehicle or a kind of a powertrain to where a very efficient, highly skilled team brings the transaction from beginning to uh, completion. Where do you see the future? So rather, you would rather reduce it and have highly expert team that knows it all and that just pops in, does the transaction and moves out again? Is that how you see it? Where, where do you see the future and giving some positive prospects if you can after a year like this one? I do have a vision and now that you're kindly inviting me to share it, I, I, uh, I have the guts to share it. So I, my vision contains three elements and I will begin with the, the legal work. My vision really is that there's no need to have two external legal teams involved on the seller and buyer side. What my vision is more that you kind of have a notary, if you know what I mean, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a notary that looks after the interests of the seller and the buyer. So you have one joint legal team that only has the task of ensuring that the commercial deal is legally solid, written down on transaction documents. And the transaction documents are drafted in a way that they are simple, short and understandable for non-lawyers. So my vision really is there is this, let me call him or her, the um, legal angel or the, the M&A notary who focuses only on the transaction documents and legal compliance because there's so much ego. I mean, the seller wants to dictate the transaction documents. Then the lawyers want to have the SPA, the APA, the way they've always wanted it. Then you get the markup from the buyer's lawyers. They also have an ego. They turn every stone. It's, it's really a battle about words, I must say self-critically say. And I think there's a lot of inefficiency that you can easily take out. And I know a lot of businessmen who don't understand why this is happening so that the lawyers have their side deal and it takes forever. to. It, it sounds like that experience comes from your, or, or that vision comes from your conflict resolution. So rather, there is no conflict if you have just one lawyer. That's what you say? Oftentimes, I would say a legal facilitator is all you need. The transaction lawyer is all you need. It's not about the law. It's about the business rationale. It's about financial terms. It's about um, operational models. You know what I mean? So M&A is not about law. So um, that's that's one vision. The second vision is that all the relevant business data, let's say the target's business data, that it's all digitally available. I mean, it's mind-blowing how much time and energy it costs. Mm. Find them, redact them, upload them. You know what I mean? It's mind-blowing. No company is so advanced that they have all their relevant business data digitized so that they're readily prepared for an M&A transaction that starts in five minutes. Mm. You know what I mean? It's, it's yes. unfortunate. <laughs> it's like nobody has a packed suitcase because he or she may, may um, win the lottery and choose to buy a ticket to go to New York tomorrow. Yeah. But I think companies can do a much, much better job, much more sophisticated ERP systems, much more sophisticated contract management systems, contract repository systems. You know what I mean? So I think te technology brings a lot. And if I'm advising startups, I would really advise them, please, from day one, go digital. Invest in making sure you have all your business data up to date 
mm. digitally available because um, sooner or later you will possibly be involved in an M&A transaction and then you will appreciate that you have everything in the drawer. Yes, and there are platforms and tools available. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, and the third part of your vision? The third so. part of the vision is there must be more communication in the deal. Okay, it's mm. good that the core detail knows everything about it, the what, the how, the why. But if you're doing M&A in large organizations, I, I would tend to say that there must be much more left-shifted communication with the workforce. I think confidentiality and deal uncertainty are exaggerated at a certain point in time. I think you can structure the deal sooner rather than later point in time of the transaction, well before signing, you can communicate more what you're doing, how you're doing it, why you're doing it, to, to address exactly what you said, Louis, in the mm -hmm. beginning. Um, there's human beings involved. They would like to understand why are we doing this? What's in it for me? Yes, It's dealing with fear, actually, I think. Uh, and that is very often underestimated. It's natural fear of defense, of protection, and you don't know what is coming. So I think that's, I agree. Um, not <laughs> this lack of communications is probably very often also a lack of confidence of leadership because they don't know how and they always are worried if I say this, somebody might blame me for it or whatever. So that is something that we see so that the better leadership is prepared to convey the message, the better it cascades throughout the, the entire organization. So absolutely. And I think that builds this strength and resilience for the transformation because there is a lot of uncertainty, there is a lot of challenges, but the earlier you start and the more information you provide and the less tight you are in the information, I can just say this, and so our, it is a great success for our, our cultures are made to go together. Okay, who has done a cultural assessment as part of their due diligence? Nobody. And yet you say that the cultures are made to fit. Uh, interesting. <laughs> so yeah, this is exactly where, I, where, where I'm after. Yeah, and, and I like to appreciate cross-functionality And what do I mean by that? Nobody is a natural born financial analyst. Nobody is a natural born M&A lawyer. Nobody is a natural born CEO. Nobody is a natural born communicator. So I think what you describe, a lack of knowledge and experience in articulating how to deal with uncertainty of myself, of my team, of my peer, of my organization, requires training. So if you want to overcome that, I think you just need to train yourself in how to communicate effectively. And you can learn that just like you can learn how to read and understand a balance sheet, as you can learn how to read and understand reps and warranties. You don't have to have a law degree to understand how risks are allocated in an APA or SPA. Hopefully you don't have to go to law school. For me, really, um, professional life is all about appreciating that everybody different knowledge and experience and capabilities to the table. And you just need to um, look at it at team sports and, and make sure you learn from the goalie how to catch the ball and you learn from the forward how to score. Alexander, you um, you have covered quite a lot of interesting topics. How do you go about the little print in, in contracts and in deals? 
what would be the number one tip that you would give to any of our auditors where you say, okay, this is, if I have to, we just discussed a number of things that simplification, digitalization, um, also integration, because basically, as you said, it's not because you are the lawyer or because somebody is a CEO that they know what to do. Basically, why do you expect that the rest of your workforce doesn't have a good idea on what should happen? Why does information have to come from one single person? But if there's one thing that is really on your heart that people should do more, better, what can we do? How can we improve the world of M&A? <laughs> take out ego. Mm. I would say take out ego. I have not done M&A for 30 years. There are people who have. But when I entered the world of M&A, it was a world where, where I thought, okay, this is huge. Because every uh, person who does M&A you talk to, they are extremely self-confident. They're extremely extrovert. And they make you think, particularly M&A lawyers, that's kind of the crown jewels of uh, legal services. I don't think so. <laughs> I really don't think so. It's complicated because you have so many legal pieces of the puzzle, but it's not complex. And I think understanding the difference between complexity and uh, complication or complicated, I think does lawyers good. So I think uh, taking out the ego uh, is, is probably the best advice I can give to myself and others. <laughs> why, yeah, the, the question I have to you is, why is it so difficult for sellers and buyers to left shift communication activities? Why don't they understand? Why do they bring in the communication experts rather too late than rather too early? What, what, why? In order what we see and when we run seminars and, and workshops, one of the questions that we ask is, okay, what does it take to do a great transaction? It basically says you need a strong business rationale, which you can obtain from consultants, which you can obtain from a C-suite and from some of the people you just mentioned before who have dreams of where the future should be. And when you ask the question, okay, why do transactions not deliver the expected value? What often is called as fail, but maybe we just say they don't deliver the expected value. The number one reason that people say is it's because of people, it's because of ego, it is because of cultures. However, um, one of my favorite quotes is that communications is a science and an art. And the science part is, well, um, what is the return on investment of communications? So if I do a press release, do I get employee engagement? No, you don't get employee engagement if it was a press release. But it's a multitude of aspects that cover trust that help you build this. Okay. And that is that makes it difficult for communications to prove its value because there is no direct material correlation between one initiative and do I see it in my balance sheet? Do I see this as an increase somewhere? Because it is a long-term perspective. We all know the famous quote, it takes 20 years to build a reputation and see. So yes, but that is a truth. And we are all in quick wins, low-hanging fruit. We want something immediately tangible right now. While the work of communications is building trust. And do you build trust in one minute? Maybe, but you build a relationship with trusted partners. It takes time. And it takes a lot of interaction and a many transactions to build that trust. And that is something that in our world today is very difficult to convey and to let that time. So I think that is a reason why, why communications comes in late 
The second one is that probably communications in the public mind is very much still associated with the early ages of marketing. So communications is telling the world something. In many of my transactions or my peers of my work, I said zero is my highest KPI. So not being in the press is what I want to achieve. <laughs> and it takes a lot of work not to be in the press or not to be visible. In the overall C-suite mind, communications is telling everybody something. And that is what, of course, deal makers are worried about. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. So, Alexander, I would like to thank you. Um, thank you for taking the time for this conversation, this passionate conversation. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Diplomacy. Please explore our website, www corporate-diplomat.com or our LinkedIn page. I hope you have enjoyed. Feel free to subscribe and hit the follow button. Have a great day.